a few weeks ago now, I had the opportunity to chat with a friend of mine about her holiday plans. Uh, and uh, we sort of exchanged some ideas for, for what to do on holiday in Northern Ireland. Um, and she was saying that after a short break in Northern Ireland, she was going to travel uh, foreign. Uh, but how now, after her replacement hip surgery, foreign travel is a bit more of an ordeal. Uh, it's a bit more uh, frustrating. It's a bit more time-consuming. Uh, it's a bit more, uh, in her words, ridiculous. Uh, because after her hip replacement, uh, when she stands in the queue at security at the airport, she looks the same as absolutely everybody else. But, but as the picture shows, when she goes through that scanner, that body scanner, uh, and the big bells and whistles all start to go off. It's always a really odd conversation that she has to have uh, with those on security. And she says there's, never, there's usually never a woman to, to do the search, the, the manual search, and she always has to wait, and it's a real pain and hassle. Um, she looks the same as everybody else in the queue, uh, but something happens to reveal that actually underneath, inside, she's different. Well, over the last few weeks, we've been uh, looking at uh, these Beatitudes, uh, the beginning uh, of the, Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm very grateful to, to David and Jeremy uh, and Davy and Andrew for uh, taking you through so well the, the first four Beatitudes. Uh, and in these Beatitudes, what Jesus really does effectively is run an X-ray scanner uh, over his disciples uh, and show what a real disciple, an authentic believer, what, what's really different uh, in the in, on the inside. Um, you see, at one level, Christians, uh, at first glance, believers, followers of Jesus, uh, look the same as everybody else. At least we should. Um, we wear the same clothes, at least most of us. Uh, we listen to the same music. We watch the same TV shows. We have the same jobs. But according to Jesus, actually, under the bonnet, underneath, inside, internally, we should be increasingly different uh, to the world uh, around us. Um, a bit like that woman, uh, a friend of mine, on the queue, uh, there is something inside that marks us out. And it's not, uh, it's not external. Uh, it's not that we attend church and others don't. It's not that we're good living uh, and others aren't. It's not that we try harder and others don't. No, the difference isn't external. The difference is internal. It is a matter of the heart. It is a matter of your character. That's what marks a true believer out. Um, that is what uh, makes us fundamentally Different, And Jesus describes then eight characteristics which are called Beatitudes, eight characteristics uh, that mark the Christian out as different. Uh, Beatitudes describe the kind of character then that meets with God's approval. I came across one commentator, so it's been a technical commentary, but uh, I find this little phrase really helpful. It's the kind of character, the kind of lifestyle that God high-fives that God uh, treats with approval, uh, that pleases him, uh, and that ultimately leads to him blessing us uh, and leads to our flourishing uh, in the end. Um, and so what, uh, in the first four of the Beatitudes that we have looked at uh, over the past few weeks, we have seen that the Christian character 
is first and foremost defined by uh, our attitude to God. We recognize that we are poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt before God. Uh, Before God, uh, we are sinful and unworthy. And when you see the ugliness and, and horror of that, you feel sorrow and regret. You mourn. Uh, we, our Christians are those who then come to God and are meek before him, humble before him, and commit ourselves to, to, and entrust ourselves to God's mercy and his wisdom and his goodness. Um, and that we hunger increasingly to be like him. And so the Christian character is defined first and foremost by our attitude towards God. But then in these next four uh, Beatitudes four characteristics that should increasingly describe all Christians. Uh, Jesus goes on to say that that, uh, there are distinct ways of treating other people that should be true for Christians. And so for Christians, there is both a, a private side and a public side to our Christian character, our Christian character that should be increasingly true for us. And so the first one that we come across uh, this, this week, the first characteristic that should shape and mark out the way members of Jesus' kingdom should treat other people uh, is in Matthew 5 verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Perhaps a helpful way of putting this. What, what is mercy? What do we mean by mercy? What does Jesus mean by mercy? Uh, I came across this as a definition. I think it's helpful. Mercy is showing kindness to your enemies in distress. Mercy is showing kindness to your enemies in distress. The merciful person is someone who's willing to act to alleviate uh, the misery of those who have wronged them. Now, I think that is a radical Countercultural attitude. Uh, that, look, there is plenty of compassion and kindness out in the world. We see it all the time. There's lots of people who are really kind. Uh, we see it every time comic relief comes around. We see it every time uh, children in need comes around. There's sponsored runs for all sorts of really good causes. People are very compassionate. They see the need and distress of others, and they want to respond with kindness and practical help. We see that all the time. But what Jesus is talking about is something uh, very different. What Jesus is talking about is being open-handed and open-hearted to those who have wronged us and hurt us. Again, as we'll see in a moment, that is very, very different to uh, the the worldly uh, attitude that we see uh, all around us. And what Jesus does in this this, uh, beatitude, he states the point, but then a little later on in Matthew's gospel, he tells a story that actually illustrates what mercy looks like. He illustrates what mercy looks like. And that's why I had Chris read uh, Matthew 18. And if you've closed your Bible, could you turn back uh, to to Matthew 18 again? Uh, That parable, uh, Matthew 18, verses 21 uh, to the end uh, of the chapter. And the first thing we see here, uh, as is summarized uh, in verses 32 and 33, is that almost the, the great, there are many ways to show mercy. 
But the greatest way to show mercy, perhaps even the most difficult way for us to show mercy, is to forgive those who have wronged us. And so the king in the story says, as we'll see in a minute, you wicked servant, I forgive you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. If we're to be those people who are merciful, then one of the things that we need, and perhaps the most difficult thing that we need to learn to do is that we need to forgive those people who have wronged us, betrayed us, abused us uh, in various uh, different ways. And so what I want to do uh, this morning is to just give you two lessons from this parable that Jesus wants us to learn. The two lessons, very simple. Number one is that our mercy must not be limited. Our mercy must not be limited. And then the second idea, and, and why that's true, is because God's mercy cannot be equaled. Okay? Our mercy must not be limited because God's mercy cannot be equaled. Let's take each one of those phrases in turn. First, our mercy must not be limited. Uh, if you glance back to Matthew 18, you see that Jesus tells the story uh, from verses 23 to the end of the chapter in response to a question. Uh, It's in response to Peter's question. Um, Verse uh, 21, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now this is a question, a question, uh, but I'm sure some of you, most of you perhaps have been in that experience where you've been in a classroom, been in a a lecture, been in a seminar uh, where... Uh, the teacher invites some questions, and then there's this one person who puts up their hand, that obnoxious student who asks a question, but it's not really a question, is it? It's really just merely, it's not a request for more information. It's merely an opportunity for them to tell the teacher and everybody else how much they know. Uh, how they are smarter than the teacher, how they have read all the latest books and know all the latest things. Um, And are just really, the the, the question really can be summarized as, don't you agree with me? Okay, so they say a whole lot, don't you agree with me? Peter is effectively being like that obnoxious pupil, isn't he, by asking this question. Shall I forgive my brother? How many times shall I forgive my brother and sister? And then he answers his own question, doesn't he? Up to seven times. Uh, You see, uh, commentators tell us that in the ancient world, rabbis uh, of Jesus' day taught that uh, and recommended that if you have someone as a repeat offender against you, Uh, and they come to you and they say they're sorry, you're obliged to forgive them three times. Three times you should forgive them. But on the fourth time, you were permitted to say, enough is enough. The well is dry. You've crossed the line. There's no more forgiveness for you. Okay? That was what was commonly taught by religious teachers in Jesus' day. And see what Peter is saying? Look at me. Aren't I big-hearted? I have taken that recommended three times. I have doubled it and added one. Look, aren't I, aren't I a big... He's expecting Jesus to say, Well done, Peter. Aren't you big-hearted? 
he's expecting uh, a commendation from Jesus, but that's not what he gets at all. Look at verse uh, 22. Um, And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. That can be translated, little phrase can be translated either way. So if you have a Bible, it could be translated 70 times or uh, um, 70 times seven, which is 490 times. Either way, Jesus is making a very simple point. Forget your scorekeeping, Peter. Forget your Uh, listing your wrongs and keeping records and keeping count. Forget that. Forget that. You should forgive someone as many times as they sin against you. Your mercy must not be limited. Your mercy must not be limited. Now that's, again, really countercultural in our day. Uh, if you think about how the world works, how does the world work? The world works effectively by saying, when you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. In fact, if you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back even more so that you learn who's in charge and not to do it again. And so the world encourages us that when someone says a hurtful word against you, how should you respond? Well, with a raised fist. And if someone hits you with a raised fist, you should respond with a lethal weapon. You you get the idea, escalated. The the principle that the world has is of disproportionate, disproportionate retaliation. But what Jesus is saying is that followers, his followers, those who are authentically believers, how we should respond to hurt and offense is with disproportionate mercy. Disproportionate mercy. Mercy to those who do not deserve it. Jesus is saying that his followers are to be mathematically inept at counting. Mathematically inept at counting wrongs. That might be encouraging for you who who struggle with maths. That's actually a good thing. A good thing in this sense. Um, how should we respond? Again, we should respond with unlimited mercy. But even as I look around this crowd, and I can see it in some of your faces, now that's easier said than done, isn't it? That's easier said than done. That's, that's all lovely and nice and twee in theory, but you don't know how I've been hurt. You don't know how seriously I have been sinned against. You don't know what that person has done to me. That's not realistic. That's not realistic at all for me to be unlimited with my mercy. And so what Jesus does is in response to that, he anticipates that criticism. And so Jesus tells this very famous story from verse 23 down to the end of the chapter because Jesus here shows himself to be the master teacher, the master teacher. Uh, Jesus doesn't just give us a lecture in psychology. He doesn't just write a theological treatise. No, he tells a story. He tells a story, a story with a sting in the tail uh, so that we not just understand the truth, but we feel it. We feel it. It's an evocative story. Um, And it's this story 
uh, about the unmerciful servant. And Jesus' big point uh, in this story is to say, your mercy can be unlimited if you understand that God's mercy cannot be equaled. You can be unlimited in your mercy if you understand that God's mercy cannot be equaled. Uh, And the force of this parable all hinges on the size of the debt that the first servant has incurred uh, in verse 24. Um, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts. He's he's doing his tax returns at the end of the year uh, and finds a big, massive debt that is unpaid, that he is due. Uh, And so he calls his servant, uh, who owes him 10,000 talents. Now, at one level, that means absolutely nothing to us uh, in the the 21st century. Uh, But a talent in the first century in the Roman world was the highest unit of currency there was. Uh, Some of you might be familiar with some of the currency that's mentioned in the New Testament if you're a Bible reader. Uh, a denarii, a denarius, a denarii, um, was uh, what a manual laborer would have been paid for one day's work. A denarius. Sixty denarius or denarii uh, made a, a minus uh, or a minus, however you pronounce it, and sixty of those made one talent. So if you start to do the maths. It would take a manual laborer roughly 45 years to earn a talent. One talent. That's, that's virtually 45 years. That's virtually your whole working life, isn't it? Your whole working life to earn one talent. And how much does this servant do? 10,000 talents. Uh, I came across a commentator uh, this week who, who says there's a, a record uh, of um, under a particular emperor who was taking some taxes, who gathered 60 talents uh, as the taxes for all of the region of Judea, Idumea, and Samaria. That, that's, we're, we're talking at the level of national debt here. Uh, maybe... The modern equivalent might be billions, if not trillions of pounds. That's the debt that the servant owed. And so in verse 25, when the servant says, just be patient with me, I can pay it back. He is living in cloud cuckoo land. Again, if you do the maths, I'm a bit of a geek like that. I did the maths. It would take him 450,000 years to pay the debt off. That's... I don't think we can really expect, he can really expect the king to be that patient, can he? And in the ancient world, uh, if you got into debt, there was no bankruptcy law to fall back on. So if you got yourself into massive, massive debt, not only would you have to sell off all your assets, your house and all your possessions, but you'd also more likely have to sell yourself and even your family into slavery to pay off the debt. That's what um, is being got at there by... um, In verse 25, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children uh, and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. 
This is a shocking debt. This is a debt of billions of pounds. Um, It's well over my credit card limit. I'm assuming it's well over your credit card limit uh, as well. And the point is, this is a debt that this servant could never, ever, ever pay. And yet we come across something absolutely amazing. Uh, Inexplicable there in verse 27. The servant's master, the king, took pity on him cancelled the debt and let him go. Not just restructured the debt. You hear of of companies going to administration and they need their debt restructured. No, 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 no. His debt is completely cancelled, written off. The king hits delete on the balance sheet. It's gone forever. Not only is he set released from slavery, but the very debt itself uh, is removed. And when you get to the end of this little account, when you, if you just glance down to verse 35, we see that this is how God, this is a brilliant illustration actually of how God has treated us, how God has treated us. This is how your heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother uh, from the heart. But God has treated us like this. We all have a colossal debt. Now the Bible uses uh, to describe our problem, uh, to describe our wrongdoing, the Bible uses the little, little Bible word sin. We don't use it in normal conversational English anymore. Uh, the word sin, and it's a little word with I at the center. And that actually is a pretty good description of what sin is. It's living your life with me and my and I, me first at the center, living for ourselves. Uh, And when we do that, we ignore and reject God in the world that he's made. And inevitably, we use and abuse other people around us. And the Bible uses a whole bunch of different pictures to describe how serious sin is um, and what needs to be done to rescue us. One picture might be the the picture of pollution. We're polluted by sin and we need to be washed clean. Uh, The Bible uses uh, the picture of addiction. We're addicted to selfishness. And we need to be set free. Uh, The Bible uses the picture of of disease. We're infected by sin. uh, And we need to be cured. But one of the common pictures that the Bible uses to describe sin and its seriousness is this idea of a debt. And so in our last little series where we looked at the Lord's Prayer uh, from Matthew uh, chapter 6, Jesus used that language. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We have all accrued a colossal debt. You see, the truth is we all owe God. We owe him our love and our loyalty and our total obedience because he is our maker and he's our king. We owe him everything, everything we have. We owe him our obedience and love and loyalty, but we've all failed to pay. We've all failed to pay. Um, And just like failing to pay a credit card bill, failing to pay a mortgage, there's consequences, there's penalties for failing to pay. Um, And so in the Bible, our debt means that we're going to be faced with uh, God's punishment and his righteous anger, uh, anger that we deserve. We have all a colossal debt. And we're all completely unable to pay the debt. If we owe him everything... 100%, you can never pay more than 100% of what you've got, can you? It's impossible. 
And so whatever that you do that is good on the, on the credit side of your column to God can never outweigh what is on the debit side. We are completely unable to compensate God for what we've done wrong. And so we are completely unable to pay the debt that we have. And yet the good news, and here's the heart of Christianity, the good news is that in God's sheer pity and his inexplicable kindness, God has cancelled the debt for us at enormous personal cost. In the person of his son, uh, he came and he paid our debt on the cross. He took the shame and the death sentence that we deserved on himself that we might have our debt cancelled. And so the truth of the matter is then, we are always a bigger villain than a victim. Whatever another person has done against you, no matter how awful, is nothing compared to what you and I have done to God. We are always bigger, a bigger offender than we are a victim. We're always a bigger offender than we are a victim. Jesus sets up the second half in, in that light. Jesus sets up the second half of the parable. Uh, and it, it mirrors the first half. You have someone who owes a debt to someone who is challenged about it and then begs, using exactly the same words, begs for patience, uh, begs for mercy. Uh, but this time, uh, receives none. Uh, you're meant to be shocked by the second half of the story. Again, this is not an insignificant debt. Again, a denarius is a day's wages, so... Imagine you could figure out how much you are paid by the day and then um, multiply that by 100. We're talking between, depending on your salary, between 6,000 and 10,000 pounds. That's not the sort of debt you're going to forget, is it? It's not the sort of debt you're going to forget. And yet, this servant who has been forgiven so, so much, who has received such mercy, withholds his mercy from this other second servant who deserves it, or doesn't deserve it either. Um, he too begs for more time, but it's not given to him. In fact, this servant demands not mercy, gives not mercy, but demands justice. Demands justice. Throws the guy in prison uh, until he's able to repay. And again, we're going to be shocked and appalled by the story. That's, that's certainly how the other servants who were watching on, how they reacted, wasn't it? Uh, when they reported him to the king. And as he's dragged before the king, what does the king say? Well, the king effectively says, How dare you take and receive mercy from me and not be willing to show it to someone else who by comparison owes you peanuts? Now again, we're meant to understand in Jesus' parables, there's always a sting in the tail. A sting in the tail. The sting in the tail in the first instance was for Peter, wasn't it? Peter was still keeping records, keeping score. Peter, as he heard the story, would, would maybe at first glance have thought, I'm a bit like those servants. I'm very big-hearted uh, and there are other hard-hearted people out there. 
But the sting in the tail is whenever you set limits to your mercy, whenever you withhold mercy from someone, you are like that first servant, Peter. You're like that first servant. You have failed to grasp. You failed to keep sight of the fact that you have been forgiven a colossal debt which you've been set free from at enormous cost to God. Our mercy, in the same way, must not be limited because God's mercy cannot be equaled. Now, one person that understood this, I think, uh, is Gordon Wilson. Gordon Wilson, many of you in this room will know of Gordon Wilson. And I think I've even mentioned him uh, before from the front But on the the 8th of November, uh, 1987, he, with a whole bunch of others, uh, and his daughter, Marie, uh, were taking part uh, in the remembrance uh, service in the center of the town in Enniskillen uh, when uh, a bomb, a 40-pound bomb that was planted by the provisional IRA, exploded, killing uh, 11 people. Uh, And Marie was one of those 11 who died... Uh, of her injuries in the rubble beside her father. He heard her last words. And yet, only a couple of hours, only a couple of hours after the death of his daughter, while still in shock and grief, uh, a mic was pushed in front of him by a BBC reporter, and he was asked to make a comment. Uh, And this is what he said. I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. That sort of dirty talk is not going to bring her back to life. She was a great wee lassie. She loved her profession. She was a nurse. She was a pet. She's dead. She's in heaven and we shall meet again. And I pray for these men tonight and every night. Shocking thing to say. Here a man in the midst of his grief, a Christian man, in the midst of his grief, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his shock, so understood the mercy of God to him that he had trained himself to show mercy to others. So when that horrific situation happened to him, that was his first response. Uh, In fact, um, The historian Jonathan Barden, uh, speaking of the legacy that Gordon Wilson had, and the legacy of his words in particular, he said, No words in more than 25 years of violence in Northern Ireland uh, had such a powerful emotional impact. And look, there's no doubt, there's no doubt, his example of personal forgiveness, his pleas for peace, uh, prevented reprisals and saved lives. There's there's no doubt about that. There's no doubt about that. The impact of his response cut off potentially another spiral of violence uh, and hatred. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Look, there's probably people in your life who have wounded you deeply. Wounded you deeply hurt you, wronged you, abused you in various ways. 
And forgiveness is not naive. Forgiveness is not naive. If you forgive them, you are not saying, you are not saying what they did is okay and doesn't matter. That's not what forgiveness asks you to do. And forgiveness is not saying there should be no consequences to their behavior. It is perfectly possible to forgive someone genuinely, completely from your heart and still report them to the police because they've committed a crime. That's, that's perfectly possible. But I think Pete Gregg has put it well in his little book on the Lord's Prayer where he said forgiveness, however, this is what forgiveness is. It's a choice to let go, or to, let, to, to love and let go, not to hate and hold on. It tends to be a process as we choose to forgive again and again, day after day. Or as Jesus puts it, not seven times, but 70 times seven. That's what forgiveness is. It's the choice to let go, to love and let go, to entrust the consequences to God. We find that incredibly difficult. We find that incredibly difficult. The reason we find that incredibly difficult is actually we quite like planning those retaliations. Well, if they ask me for, for this, then they'll know that I'll, I'll say this. We quite like that, what, some, what one commentator calls uh, the sweet sugar of self-pity. Feeling the victim. We actually quite like that, feeling the victim. Because what it does is it makes us feel superior. And to forgive then is like a little death. It's like a little death. It's incredibly painful. Jesus knows that. It's incredibly painful. It is sacrificing all those things to choose to love and let go. We're not going to bring it up in our own mind. We're not going to bring it up to other people. And we're not going to bring it up to them. That's not necessarily the same thing as reconciliation. Reconciliation they need to, the other person, the, the person who has wronged you needs to repent. But you don't need to wait for that to happen before you can forgive. You can let it go and entrust it and trust justice uh, to God. And this parable ends with a warning. Here's the sting in the tail. It ends with a warning. Verse 35, this is how your, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Um, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, initially, that sounds like Jesus is saying, you've got to do the forgiving in order to earn God's forgiveness. That's how it sounds at first reading, doesn't it? But of course, if you read it that way, that is a flat-out contradiction to everything else Jesus has said, everything else the New Testament has said, everything else the whole Bible has said about forgiveness from God being a free gift of his undeserved kindness or grace. Now, Jesus is not saying you need to forgive because that way you earn God's forgiveness. No, it's entirely the opposite way around. You do not earn forgiveness by forgiving and showing mercy. But a willingness to forgive is the evidence that you have understood the scale and cost of God's mercy towards you. If you refuse, here's the warning, if you refuse to forgive then there's the very real possibility that you have not understood 
how great your debt was. You fail to understand the, kind, the extent of God's kindness and mercy. You fail to understand the good news of Christianity. Because those who have experienced mercy will have their hearts changed, will be humbled, their hearts will be softened, so that they are the ones who are able to show mercy. And so when we are struggling to show mercy to others, and we'll all struggle, we'll all struggle, and it'll be a struggle for the rest of our lives for most of us. But when you struggle, remember that our mercy must not be limited because God's mercy cannot be equaled. And you should hear the words of Jesus echoing in your your ears. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let me pray for God's help.